The lecture today is Aviation Safety, Did We Just Get Here by Accident? And as we all know, we are very lucky to have it given to us by Professor Graham Braithwaite. For those of you who do not know him, and I think there's probably only one or two, Graham is the head of the Department of Air Transport at Cranfield, where he's been since 2006, having joined that department in 2003 as director of its Safety and Accident Investigation Centre. He holds a PhD in Aviation Safety Management from Loughborough. He's a fellow of this society and a member of the International Society of Air Safety Investigators. Furthermore, he is course director of Cranfield's world-renowned Aircraft Accident Investigation Fundamentals of Accident Investigation and Accident Investigation for Aviation Management Professional Continuing Education courses. He is therefore extremely well placed to inform us on his chosen topic. Graham, I invite you to talk to us about aviation safety. Did we just get here by accident? Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's an extraordinary privilege to be here at Hamilton Place and standing between you and a barbecue, uh, which being someone who's a, a dual citizen with Australia, I realise is a crime in itself. But uh, uh, hopefully you'll find this at least interesting and maybe um, give you some things to talk about uh, uh, over dinner for those that are staying. Uh, I thought I'd uh, pose a question, and that's why I wrote Aviation Safety, Did We Get Here by Accident? I know I did. Nine months before I was born, there was an electricity strike. But that's not really what you want me to talk about, is it? I'll just let a couple of you catch up on that one. Well, <laughs> what I want to talk about really is the state we find ourselves in as an industry, those that look to us for perhaps leadership and guidance, uh, and just maybe spend some time to analyse how we got there uh, and whether we're still heading in the right direction. Lots of exciting things happening in aviation at the minute. Some of you would recognise the photograph there of the first flight of the uh, A350, uh, and I'll mention the 787 perhaps a little bit later on. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't start off with at least some statistics about how safe aviation is. And I'm not going to use mine, I'm going to use other people's. In this case, I'm going to refer to ICAO and IATA, who very proudly spoke about last year in terms of its very great achievements uh, in terms of safety. Compared with 2011, the number of fatalities decreased by 10% making 2012 the safest year with regard to fatalities since 2004. The safety performance is very good, or at least it's very good if you're prepared to just look at the bit of safety statistics that are good. The Western-built jet aircraft flying on commercial scheduled air transport. There are other bits that are less good. If we look at IATA's statistics again, you see some very low numbers in terms of hull losses, again involving Western-built jets. And as some of you may have seen a... a, a study published last week talks about some of the most dangerous aircraft there and, of course, absent from these statistics because they're not Western-built and they're not being operated uh, in the parts of the world that most of us uh, are involved in. When you look, of course, we recognise that places like Africa still have enormous challenges in terms of aviation safety and it's not for us to criticise but to recognise that aviation is an incredibly cash-hungry business that depends on technology to achieve some of its greatness. It's nice to see then in one of the reviews of accident statistics for last year, Angela Gittens from uh, ACI, uh, being happy with the result but being cautious in her reaction to it. 
because safety is about more than just an absence of accidents. We can't easily look at an absence of accidents and suddenly think that we're safe. Uh, we'd be foolish to do that. We also have to bear in mind that safety is something that's a moving goal. People want us to be as safe as we are currently and safer again. It will never be enough to say, well, we've had an accident now, but look at last year, you know, we, we've done better than that. Safety is something that we have to keep pushing and improving because that's the expectation. Uh, and if you drift away for a moment from commercial aircraft statistics, you perhaps look, instead of looking at fixed wing, maybe look at the rotary wing industry. And some of you may come from that. Rotary Wing have set themselves a challenge of reducing commercial helicopter accident rate by 80% by the year 2016. And this initiative involving a, a huge number of companies, not just from within aviation, but outside within mineral uh, extraction, uh, police and uh, the medical industry, uh, have pushed really hard to try and improve this accident rate. And yet, as you can see from their statistics, they're likely to fall short of their goal and quite, quite well short of their goal uh, by 2016, emergency medical helicopters uh, and uh, police helicopters being a particular area of concern. So we shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be complacent in thinking that we have an ultra-safe industry that never goes wrong, because every so often things like this happen. And these days, somebody's probably filming it when it happens, almost certainly tweeting it within seconds uh, and later on putting it up on YouTube. Here's a reminder that we have to keep working hard to get it right but also, as we probably saw, a license for a couple of people to jump in rather too quickly to suggest that aviation really needs to sort itself out. Perhaps a misguided reaction uh, from someone with over uh, high expectations about the realities. Uh, and yet these events are becoming rare to the point that we are surprised and, uh, uh, and, and shocked to the point that even the event like QF32, which happened back in 2010, the report of which was released last week, is being referred to as a black swan event, one of those rare events that we didn't necessarily see was coming. And yet this incident, or accident in terms of damage, could so easily have been an accident that looked more like this, Korean Airlines on Nimitz Hill uh, in 1997 uh, on the island of Guam, uh, a scene of destruction. Uh, it was so close to that, and I think we need to bear in mind that in both of the two events I've mentioned, an A319 over London, uh, with one engine shut down and one damaged, and in this case, Qantas 32, with uh, a horrendous amount of damage, the potential uh, for enormous loss of life was huge. Uh, and I'd question just how much we could sustain the loss of an ultra-large aircraft or an ultra-modern aircraft like 787 or 380 without it having a very significant effect on our industry. Uh, and maybe that's the reason that these things on occasion referred to as black swan events, uh, an event that was a surprise to the point that no one could have predicted that this could have possibly happened, that the impact was major uh, and certainly in terms of concern around the world. And, and yet, with hindsight, easy to look back and say, well, we could have seen this coming. Well, you could argue it two ways. I think you look at five people there who showed a remarkable uh, ability as a crew, uh, a remarkable leadership, under Captain de Crespigny, uh, and, and working against the aircraft at times uh, and, and delivering a phenomenal result. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And, and arguably, you could look at it another way and say, well, surely this is what we train crews to do every day. Surely we should have an expectation that the crews should be able to deal with everything we throw at them. Well, it's a point of debate, really. 
if we look at another example where the unimaginable happened, the A320 trying to climb over New York only to find itself losing both engines with almost uh, instant uh, reaction, the, the, the reaction of that crew was just phenomenal, wasn't it? And, and those of us who perhaps heard the captain speak have heard of this amazing achievement. And if there was one thing that I could uh, um, maybe take a pot shot at, and I, I hope not to be cheap about this, that, that it, as the story's told over and over again, you could be fooled to think that this was the only person in the world who co could have possibly delivered as successful an outcome uh, as this. And I would hope that that's not the system we've developed. The system we've developed should be able to cope with every crew who we consider to be fit to fly the aircraft, dealing with the sorts of things that might happen. Because at the end of the day, engine failures on aircraft are not exactly a new thing. And, and yes, this was a, um, a particularly unusual and particularly uh, extreme uh, version of that. But hopefully we are training people to be ready for the things that really don't happen very often. And, and here's the challenge. It's the curse, if you will, of this ultra-high reliability where... Nothing ever goes wrong. At the point that Chelsea Sullenberger suffered his first engine failure in the A320, he'd never experienced a real engine failure in an aircraft before. Never. Only ever happened in the simulator. And then the guy gets a second one, a second later, involving the other engine. And, and the surprise must have been phenomenal. So he, as good as the simulation can get and as good as the, uh, the practice can get, we're creating a, a system very positively where things don't go wrong. We don't have that same experience of, of dealing with it. So again, let, let's put up another example of where sometimes the crew do amazing things that perhaps go beyond what we could reasonably expect. You perhaps recall uh, Mike, 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 the 777 that belonged to British Airways, limping over the boundary at uh, Heathrow, largely because of a, a very fast reaction by the crew in recognizing that the aircraft uh, was not uh, delivering the thrust it could uh, and putting in a stage of flap just to get them over onto the runway. That was a phenomenal thing to do. And again, let's hope that these are the people that we are creating through the training that we're giving people. Because I think modern pilots face a philosophical challenge and that is that we take them and turn them into monitors and programmers, something that for the last 20 years that I've been involved in aviation has been a recurrent story that we're creating uh, people who are there to, mo to watch and monitor and be ready for something that might possibly go wrong as long as you can spot it or as long as the aircraft tells you that you, can, uh, that you need to do something. Uh, and yet we immerse them in this warm, comfortable environment uh, of, of lights and, and dim lighting just to uh, perhaps sit there and start to feel slightly sleepy. And the old analogy that no doubt everybody in the room has heard is of the need to put just one pilot on the flight deck and sit a dog next to him, argument being that the pilot's there to feed the dog and the dog's there to stop the pilot from touching anything. And, and yet I think that's too simple an analogy, really. Uh, so I've employed my dog to try and explain the point a little bit better. Uh, this is Maisie, and like most spaniels, uh, she adopts this principle in life. Uh, I've only just met you, but I love you, especially if you're going to play with my ball. And, and, and we expect the modern pilot to turn up to an aircraft and form a team with a group of people that they may never have met before and indeed may never meet again, and operate in harmony with a machine of considerable complexity, designed by people in a far land and maybe a different culture, and hope that that all works together and that when things go wrong, the technology starts to think about the failures in the same way that the crew might. Well, 
with my dog, sometimes things goes wrong. Every so often the ball goes over the fence and is lost. The unexpected happens, the thing that wasn't anticipated. And my dog turns to me and gives me this look. Says, your turn, fix it. Fix it. And if I don't fix it straight away, then like most dogs, she starts with woof, 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 woof. Woof, the, the warnings, the cautions go off, all the noises start going on to say, come on, something's going wrong, time to fix it, time to fix it. And I think, well, what are you bringing to the party? I've brought my giraffe. <laughs> I've brought something that I thought might help the party, but not necessarily what you thought would help the party. We're relying on someone to have figured out what that unexpected rare event's going to be and deliver to us information that's relevant and accurate. Some of you have seen that photograph before. It's the flight deck of QF-32. The big bangs happened and the aeroplanes talking to the crew. 53 screens of error messages, was it? About an hour of, of dealing with the computer, trying to tame these error messages as, as they came along. And, and those that have heard Richard speak will remember that they got to a point that he called their uh, Apollo 13 moment, where they stopped slavishly following it and said, instead of figuring out how we deal with what's wrong, let's figure out what actually works and how we land the aeroplane. But before they got to that point, they got to a point where the aeroplane was giving them advice, advice about what they should do. You know, we're becoming imbalanced. There's more fuel in this wing than that wing. Maybe you should transfer some fuel from this wing to that wing. And you really hope you've got someone that says, hmm, there's a reason why that wing's lighter than this wing. And the very same hole is not the one that I want to put the contents of the other wing through. So the human being is there to be shouted at, to be barked at, to be given information and perhaps has to deal with things that are not relevant and to know when those things are irrelevant. It would be remiss if I didn't horrendously name drop so loudly that this could probably be heard three streets away. But just last year, I was fortunate enough to meet Her Majesty the Queen and one of our members, His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. This was at an award ceremony for the thing you see in the bottom right, the Queen's Anniversary Prize, which Cranfield won for its contribution to aviation safety. And I'm enormously proud of that. And uh, one of the things that happened is that we were allowed to um, uh, uh, drink some champagne and uh, very pleased that the Queen buys very nice champagne, as it turns out. And uh, uh, as we were doing that, the lady in the background there came up, and some of you would know and recognize the Princess Royal. And she came to us and said, accident investigators, how fascinating. She said, now let me ask you, what did happen with that Air France Airbus over the Atlantic? And this was about uh, a month or so before they got to any sort of final report. So uh, at the moment, I'm about to open my mouth and say, well, ma'am, the report isn't out yet, so we should be cautious about what we know. Somebody else, uh, a guest of the trust, nothing to do with us, uh, leant forward and said, oh, it was perfectly simple. It was human error. The crew just stuffed up. And at this point, she looked at him and said, Really? I would have thought the ice peter feeding erroneous data to the flight deck may have caused some sort of mode confusion. <laughs> wow. How to fall in love with a princess in, uh, in just, just, just one moment. And I think that's right. You know? if, if I think about the task of the accident investigator, the incident investigator, those involved in safety management, it's about jigsaw puzzles. It's about taking these myriad pieces and trying to figure out how they fit and understand a complex problem. The wreckage that was recovered, what little of it was recovered straight away, and then thankfully later, when they eventually found most of the wreckage, told you some of the story. The data that was fed back to maintenance computers told you bits of the story. And then thankfully, two years after the event, 
when the recorders were found, it told you, well, did it tell you the answer? Or did it just tell you rather more of the story that, that, than you had at this point? And I'd argue it's the latter, because ultimately no one will ever truly understand what went through the minds of that crew, what they understood about what was going on and how they reacted to it. The best we can possibly do is take all the bits of information uh, that we can find and then check them, check them again, understand their relevance and their accuracy, and then hopefully uh, come up with something that helps prevent the thing from happening again. I don't know how many people have read the report, uh, but there are elements of it which tell us that the crew had problems. They, they didn't fully understand, or at least that's how it's interpreted, what, what the situation was they were going through. Their sharing of tasks was weakened by incomprehension of the situation and the autopilot disconnection occurred. Poor management of the startle effect. You know, here's a crew operating an aircraft that is ultra-reliable, just doesn't go wrong, and suddenly in the middle of the night, in the most horrendous weather, things start to go badly wrong. And there's lots of clues in a report like this. You know, the crew not, not taking into account the store warning, which could have been due to, again, many factors, including not identifying exactly what was going on, what the information was that was being provided to them, or clues actually guiding them down the wrong uh, path. And I think when we reflect on human performance, we need to try and understand what it felt like for them at the time in that situation and understand, as Sid Decker would say, why it made sense to them at the time. And maybe it didn't make sense, but if we don't try and understand what they were going through, then it's all too easy to apply hindsight bias and think that this was a simple problem that, that, that should have been easily fixed, and it wasn't. What we're interested in really is trying to, stop, uh, trying to spot trouble whilst it's still brewing. At the point there, we are creating a system that has opportunity to fail, an opportunity to fail perhaps as spectacularly uh, as it did over the Atlantic that night. The challenge being it's much easier said than done, of course, that uh, plenty of people with bright ideas and ways to fix it, but not all of them necessarily uh, prove it. And so our shift from accidents to incident investigation is surely a positive one. It's one that allows us to investigate many more events without the, uh, the loss of information that comes from an inevitable crash or loss of life. We've now got live witnesses. We've now got people who are willing and able to tell us exactly what they were thinking at the time. Well, that's largely true. And there's some great stuff out there, and for the benefit of at least one person in the audience, a quick advert for, for Teledyne there. You know, here, here's a company like many others out there who have made us, or had helped us understand day-to-day -day operations much more, that go out there and help us to collect flight data or FOCA, if you want to be American about it, collect information about every single flight, or, or, or to take an example like BA, 95% of flights, we've got all this wonderful data that tells us just how closely people manage to align their flying to the standards uh, that we wish them to meet. And all of this data is fabulous. Well, it's as fabulous as knowing where to look and knowing what you're looking at. That some of the animations, some of the graphics that are out there to help us understand these things are great, except it doesn't necessarily always tell you what was going on in the minds of people or what led up uh, to that, that particular event. Uh, and as a cautionary tale from uh, the rotary wing industry tells us, sometimes the data tells you that we don't desperately know exactly what to do next. At the point that this Super Puma helicopter was preparing to take off, the HUMS data seemed to suggest that there was something starting to go wrong, and the advice was to monitor that this aircraft would fly for another, I think, 10 hours uh, and needed to be closely monitored. 
the crew found themselves over the North Sea, thankfully in good weather, flying for an operator who had already lost uh, crew members and customers in a, a previous fatal accident, and the red lights start to go on to say that lubrication has failed, uh, the backup system uh, is to be fired, the backup system has failed, and the manual says land immediately. Uh, and the very great news in that and the subsequent CHC event was that the crew did a phenomenal job in something that is comparatively rare, and that is the North Sea being in good weather. They did great things, but it was a reminder that the technology is good, the data is good, but it can still be better. We can still get better and better in how we monitor the things that are about to go wrong. And bear in mind, it's not just about the technology. It's about the people, too. And our understanding of the normal is these days just as important as our understanding of the abnormal. Whilst an accident provides the opportunity to go into uh, interviewing in, in forensic depth and spend hours and hours and days and months trying to understand what went pe through people's minds, incidents provide less of an opportunity to do that. The resources available to investigate or the willingness of organisations to devote large amounts of resources to investigating incidents is ultimately limited. So ideas like LOSA, formed out of the uh, University of Texas, the Line Operations Safety Audit, and uh, to wave the flag for one of our uh, research students more recently, a maintenance application of this called MOSS, provide this opportunity to send people into the flight deck or out onto the line to observe what people do normally. And of course, in doing that, what we observe in people doing things normally is that people make errors all the time. They get things wrong. They commit violations as well, but actually more likely to commit errors. And actually, when we get into the violations, the sorts of violations that people occur much more frequently are the ones that are about getting the job done. They're not the thrill-seeking ones. They're not the exceptional ones. But it does start to tell us just how able our system is to cope with such deviations. Because every one of us makes mistakes every day. I'm sure every human factors lecture that you've ever been to reminds you of that. I don't know if anybody's made any spectacular ones today, but uh, uh, I'm sure you will have done it. What Loser has shown us is that a lot of these errors we don't realize we've made. We rely on someone else or a procedure or a technology to pick up those errors. And, of course, the danger is we do create a society where the technology tells us that we don't need to worry about being too accurate anymore. I don't know how many people have got an iPhone here, but my ability to type is going through the floor because iPhones got so good at just guessing what the word is that I'm trying to write. So error correction starts to become perhaps something that uh, helps us to ease off the pressure. But, but here's an opportunity to not just measure accidents or, or understand accidents or incidents. Here's an opportunity through programs like this to understand day-to-day -day operations. And, of course, the criticism is, as soon as you look at a day-to-day -day operation like this, maybe people are performing for the camera. Maybe because somebody's watching, they are doing a better job than normal. Well, that may be true, but for all of the errors and violations that people still make, I think a couple of my favorites being the airline captain who offered a cigarette to the person who was observing his flight, or the one that said, excuse me, whilst he called his girlfriend during the taxi out, perhaps suggests that some of the normal uh, uh, behaviours do go on uh, in these kind of studies. So I'm certainly not coming along tonight to suggest we pat ourselves on the back and say we're doing a, a mighty fine job. I think we're doing a great job. But the problem with doing a great job is people expect you to do a great job and keep doing a great job. We can't slacken off. We have to get better. 
And if you look at any of the, the graphs of uh, uh, accident rates over the last 30, 40 years, you see this massive improvement that occurred in the 60s and early 70s, and an apparent flattening more recently. Well, flattening largely because we've got so close to zero. And if you open up the numbers and look perhaps uh, at the last uh, um, 20 years, you see there's still this constant improvement. And I think that's one of the things that we deserve to be very proud of in aviation, is the culture that says, we're doing okay, but we can do better. We must do better. People expect us to do better. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for that is the way we approach events whether it's an incident or an accident. It's a favorite photograph of mine, some of you may have seen it before, uh, of a style of interviewing that we'd like to hope doesn't exist within incident or accident investigation. We'd like to think it doesn't exist. We'd like to think that no one does a quick and dirty investigation within their company and figures out who screwed up this time, only to raise their eyebrows and go, yeah, I'm not surprised, yeah, I, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. And yet this stuff still goes on. Uh, not not uh, very long ago, we ran an investigator course for professional investigators, those who investigate for the government or for their manufacturers or, or for their operators. Uh, and we worked with the police on uh, interviewing techniques. And about two hours into the interviewing techniques, a hand went up in the room and uh, somebody said, look, uh, I just want to ask, at what point is it okay to beat a witness? Uh, and the police officer looked at me as if to say... Come on, you guys, what a setup. No, it wasn't a setup at all. Where this guy came from, he'd been regularly beaten as an engineer, and often he thought it was unfair. Uh, and he knew there was a line in the sand. He was just interested as to where that line was. This was a nation that had a large air transport system. He worked as a government investigator for that uh, uh, country, and that, that, that was a little bit frightening because at least for the last 20 or 30 years and pushed along by the work of people like James Reason uh, or uh, Rob Lee in uh, the Australian Bazzi and so on, we've started to look much more systemically at why things fail. Instead of shining the torch at the last person to touch the controls, we've taken a much broader approach to say, well, why did they happen to be in that situation? Why did they react in that particular way? Could we have predicted it? Could we have prepared for it? And looking much deeper at how the system failed. And yet the downside of that, of course, and Reason speaks about it with caution as well now, is that instead of shining the spotlight at the last person to touch the controls, we shine it at someone else who happens to be their boss or their boss's boss. And we retain that same sniper-like focus on trying to put one bullet through someone and feel satisfied about it, where instead we should be broadening the searchlight to say, well, what opportunities are there for us to do a better job? And I would say that that was the true essence of our Culture, surely, it's about how do we do this better? Where can we learn from? Culture's played a role. Some of you will know uh, that my PhD actually set out to look at how it is that Australia has managed to achieve its phenomenal safety record of no fatalities to passengers on commercial jet aeroplane accidents. Uh, and it's a particular privilege for me tonight that John Faulkner, who was manager of flight safety at Qantas, uh, is here and an early mentor for me. Not least because of the very first presentation I ever made as a student, I recognised John. There he was with his hawk-like features as the manager of flight safety of Qantas, and he strolled over at the first coffee break and said, I just want you to know the only reason I'm staying at this conference is because of your paper. And I can only tell you how proud I was at that moment. Shattered immediately after when John said, of course, I disagree with just about everything you've written, but I thought I'd come anyway. <coughs> Got to love the Australian sense of humour. 
But the point was, in going to look at why this nation had a great safety record, we discovered that for all the, the great myths and stories about the weather being great or the mountains not being too high, the thing that ran through all of it was a culture, a, a culture that demanded reliability and a culture that was built around an openness of communication, something that started back when Avro 504Ks were the order of the day uh, and the captain could talk to the passenger if only it wasn't for the air rushing past. That culture of reliability started with individuals who demanded engineering excellence and with pilots who would offer feedback if they didn't get it. It works across multiple cultures. Uh, I don't know how many of you get to travel to uh, Japan. Martin was mentioning he was there quite recently. And uh, next time you go, I suggest looking out the window when you're in the terminal. And uh, I was there for a week and spent a long time looking out the terminal. And uh, every so often there was this amazing um, theatre that occurred when the aircraft was about to depart. Aircraft was pushed back, pushed back uh, uh, tractor here, uh, was very neatly parked, always in this beautiful neat pattern. And the three ground crew would wait like this, of course waiting for the first officer in this case to hand over and for them to walk off and get on with their jobs. Well, except they don't do that. They stand there and they wave at every single person on the aeroplane as the aeroplane leaves. That's their contract. I don't know if anybody's ever seen this at Heathrow, but I know if you flew out of Heathrow or Luton tomorrow and you saw one lone engineer stood on the tarmac doing this <laughs> as your aeroplane went, you'd probably feel really quite nervous. <laughs> and yet here's an example of where a culture so very different to that culture of openness that I talked about uh, uh, that's typified by Australia is strong in other ways. Strict adherence to standard operational procedure being a, a cornerstone to the way in which they operate. Uh, and the other reason I wanted to mention JAL was, was because of this. Um, you perhaps remember back in 1985, Japan Airlines suffered the greatest loss to a single aircraft ever uh, when one of its 747s lost its tail and 505 people died uh, in a crash that the crew had fought uh, amazingly to try and prevent trying to fly the aircraft just on the differential thrust that remained in the crippled airliner. And, and as time has gone by, they've never forgotten that accident. And yet staff of that airline started to realize that there were lots of people who'd never experienced this, They'd never experienced the trauma of getting it wrong and the effect that that had on the way people worked. And in fact, uh, their colleagues across the ANA started to feel the same thing, that what was emerging was a culture of reliability where nothing ever goes wrong, does it? Accidents happen in far, far away places. They don't happen to us. So the, the staff asked that they created a, a place in which staff could come and learn about the price of failure and just how easy those failures could occur. In the ANA Safety Promotion Center, one of the things they ask people to do is to sit at a desk where they're given a simple numeric uh, pad and uh, they flash numbers up on the screen and everybody has to program a number in and you, you watch the screen and everybody in this little group of pilots and uh, engineers and flight attendants do this. And at the end of it, they tell you what your percentage accuracy was as a group. And frankly, it's terrifying. You know, this is not 100% accurate because you know you're doing a test and just being asked to type simple numbers in. This is way lower than what you might expect. This is not someone trying to listen to a frequency delivered by someone heavily accented through air traffic radio. And it was a real reminder of, of perhaps um, some of the weaknesses that exist. So there are certain very good cultures out there who are interested in learning and I do want to mention uh, one in particular from this country, uh, and that's an airline that I'm very privileged to have a small involvement with, 
and that's Thomson Airways. The person you see there is Chris Brown, the chief executive, uh, who, who manages to have a healthy fear of flying. And I say it's healthy because I think it absolutely exemplifies the way in which she runs her company, and in particular the way she runs her safety review board, a board where they not only invite all the senior directors of the airline, but they get somebody in from outside, uh, in this case me, prior to that Tim uh, Steeds from um, British Airways, and they also invite their flight operations inspector from the CIA along. There are no secrets. There are people talking about what's going on and what we're doing about it. Her role is there to ask the challenging questions, of course, all the things that you would expect of a good chair uh, of a board meeting. And yet, I can tell you a couple of these stories because when I was originally asked to get involved in this, I said, do you need me to sign some sort of non-disclosure agreement? And they looked at me funny. I said, non-disclosure agreement? No, no, I don't, I don't think there's any need for that. They said, if, uh, if we're doing things wrong, your job's to tell us. If we're doing things right, your job's to tell everyone else. And they've absolutely kept to that. In the two years that I've been fortunate enough to attend these meetings, they've been tremendously open. I've never once heard one of those questions that said, who was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, not surprised. The questions that I hear every time are, should we have known about it? Could we have predicted this? And can we predict the next one before it happens? Uh, and I think that defines the culture right from the start, all of the, from the start, everything that you would hope of great safety leadership. My role is to go back to being a five-year-old, to be the person that asks the stupid question, to say, well, why do, it? why do we do it this way? Or perhaps on occasion to say, well, that's unusual, because BA don't do it that way, or Cathay don't do it that way, or EasyJet don't do it that way. And, and I think that, that external challenge is crucial. Of course, we've seen that to very great effect. Um, Sir Charles Haddon Cave did that to the uh, Royal Air Force following the loss of the Nimrod. But perhaps less known to you is that he was asked to do it for Cathay Pacific. Not because an event they'd had, but before they had the event, they said, come in and look at us in the same level of detail as you did for Nimrod, but do it before it goes wrong. And that takes tremendous courage, doesn't it, of an airline to actually do that, to invite somebody in and say, tell us what's wrong with us. And I think that, that external scrutiny, again, is something that, that's perhaps typified in the culture. A week today... Thomson Airlines will take off two 787s on the first revenue-earning flight of a 787 in UK service. And, of course, we know that's rather later than they hoped because of a problem, a problem with lithium-ion batteries in this, this case that, that, that uh, grounded the fleet. And yet what a tremendously brave thing for anybody to do in the modern age to ground a fleet of aircraft. Of course, it's the right thing to do. But with a fleet of 50... It's perhaps rather more simple than being the brave flight operations inspector that goes to their boss or the brave accident investigator that makes the recommendation that says the A320 or the 737 should be grounded, all 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 of them. This amazing culture of reliability is perhaps making it difficult to make some of the decisions when we need to make them. Uh, are at least making it harder, and there are those starting to reflect on how even cost-benefit analysis of recommendations made within the U.S. is almost always coming back to it never being worth making safety any better, and that's not really an acceptable answer to anyone. You can't go too far these days without somebody talking about safety culture. I've talked a fair amount about culture, 
and, and culture was, of course, predating anything that we might refer to as safety culture. But I wanted to throw this definition in. It actually comes from outside of our industry. Uh, and we do ourselves a very great disservice if we think that aviation hasn't got an enormous amount to learn from other sectors. It, it really has. For the last uh, nine years at Cranfield, our investigators uh, work alongside those from the rail industry and uh, marine industry. They don't always like it at the start because they think, what on earth has this got to do with me? But very quickly they come to respect the different challenges that each of those industries has and how they deal with it. The rail guys will tell you that no one has a challenge as great as theirs in terms of the pressure to reopen the infrastructure until the aviation people say, well, you try shutting a runway at Gatwick and see just how much pressure you're under. And at this point, the marine guys go very quiet because surely they're no, under no pressure at all, are they? Well, except if your ship is stranded in the middle of the ocean with an engine room fire that you've just put out, you're certainly not going to pull over and wait for the investigators to turn up. There's another push to get things back on track. And you start to realize the more you look across sectors, the, the more there are great lessons to learn. And yet, is there something that's stopping us learning lessons the way that we have done so well throughout the history of development? And, of course, there's much written at the moment uh, uh, concerns in terms of the criminalization of accident investigation or the rush towards blame uh, and sometimes litigation. Uh, and, and much like many of the health and safety laws, I'm sure a large proportion of it is myth that uh, people are concerned about things that are not reality, and yet there is a kernel of truth in all of this that people are becoming nervous. And I think it's understandable why. There's much talk of a just culture these days. And I would hope, and here's a comment made by uh, um, the CEO of Boeing at the time, 20 years before this event, that we are able to stick true to comments like this. Unacceptable to conclude an investigation of an event with the statement, if only the flight crew or maintenance crew had done what they were supposed to do. If an event like this can happen where an aircraft can depart despite checks that should have happened with cowl doors unlocked, and make it into the air, to a situation where if one engine could be damaged to the point that it was shut down in flight, then surely two could have been damaged to the same point. Then there's something more to it than pointing a finger at an engineer or a pilot and saying they should have done their job properly. Of course, those in the legal fraternity might recognize this series of photographs. It was an example where the accident investigation community learned an enormous amount from a judge. Peter Mann, the Royal Commissioner, as he became into the 1979 crash on Mount Erebus, was someone who at the time wasn't necessarily dreadfully well received. The technical investigation had found that the crew had, had flown below the minimum safe altitude. They had not followed their procedures. What the much longer and much better resourced Royal Commission found was that there was rather more to it. Uh, including this, the malevolent trick of the polar light, as it was described. What you're looking at is three photographs taken in succession, number one at the top, number two in the middle, number three at the bottom. And these photographs were taken a year after the accident in which an aircraft collided with Mount Erebus. Uh, this photograph was taken by a Royal New Zealand Air, uh, Air Force flight with the Royal Commissioner on board that flew towards the mountain knowing at what point to turn away to demonstrate this trick that could occur in light overcast where the, the, the light would start to reflect in such a way as to create an artificial horizon. A photograph at the bottom being what the crew of that aircraft may have seen, thinking they were flying over a perfectly flat area of ice, ice sea 
and seeing out the window something that looked just like it. Well, I'm not here to talk about Peter Mann, regardless of what a fine accident investigator he may have turned out to have been, but to talk about one more recently, HMS Endurance, operating a Lynx aircraft, uh, uh, suffered uh, the loss of that aircraft flying in conditions that looked remarkably like those at the time. This aircraft flying backwards and forwards between the ship with supplies uh, for one of the bases there. And the photograph taken actually just before uh, the accident. And uh, depending on your eyesight, I think I can pick one, two, three, possibly four horizons in all of that. The aircraft flew onto gently rising terrain like this, and you'd struggle to recognize that as the front of a Lynx helicopter. All the front stoved in. And the occupant of the left-hand seat here survived. Survived because of something that's probably quite hard to see. The, the seat is held into the aircraft by one thing. I've marked it. It's a strop there. And this strop was used to hold down the, the cargo as the aircraft flew out to the base and then was supposed to be removed, neatly tied up, uh, and stowed for the return back to the vessel. So these were very short hops. Uh, and in fact, what the crewman did at this point was merely clip it onto the back of the pilot's seat. A violation, of course, that saved someone's life. The pilot wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for this illegal strop stuck to the back of his seat. So what do you do in cases like this? Well, you'd learn from it most of all. You don't go straight for the, the just culture truncheon and then go and smack him over the head and say it was a violation. We told you not to do this. We showed you not to do it. So therefore, because you've done it, we must punish you. I'm sorry, you know, but it's for your own good. No, of course, we look beyond that. Uh, and if I have one great fear, and this is from working with some airlines and airports and, and professional investigators, it's that we've got to a point where we've moved beyond that not-for-blame approach to investigating incidents and accidents and say, no, no, that's old school. We've moved on. We're now about just culture. And I'll just quickly give you um, the example. This was a, an airport, a very decent airport, one of the world's top ten. And they said, we want to learn about accident investigation to the same standard as the national investigation agencies. Uh, we'd like you to do it in three days. Okay, a bit of a challenge. But we spoke for about two and a half days about this not-for-blame thing. And if you're going to sit somebody down for an interview, you explain. The purpose of this interview is to improve aviation safety, and you must feel confident to tell me exactly what happened so we can learn from the event the next time. All seemed to be going swimmingly well, I thought, until the last day when we got to report writing. And my Australian colleague mentioned that there was really no need to put names in the report because the report was about the technical happenings, not about individuals. Hand went up. No, no, he said, we have to put names in the report because when we finished our, remember, not for blame investigation, we then hand that report to their line manager who decides on the level of punishment. He carried on. If they have committed an error or violation, an error, unintentional, uh, or violation of which we know there are lots of different types, then they will get a standard punishment. And at this point, the Australian, being very Australian about it, just said, could you please forget everything we have told you for the last two and a half days? Because if you were going to sit somebody down and say, this is all about flight safety, please just tell me whatever happened so we can learn from it, and then later on you go, ha, ha, and decide to whack them around the head with the report, then guess what's going to happen next time? Uh, and I'll give you one other quick example of, a, of a, an airline again. Uh, in this case, the engineering people doing meter investigations, some of the engineers would know that's a, 
a tool that Boeing developed to, uh, to help understand the human factors aspects of uh, in investigations. And they do these meter investigations, and, then, uh, um, and, and, and this was a good human factors thing, learning from it. And you could see the rest of the airline look jealously on because they, they probably weren't that advanced. And then later in the week, we got onto a discussion about punishment. And they said, oh, well, we get all the punishment out the way in engineering first, and then we do the not-for-blame investigation stuff. And we said, really, how does that work? And they said, well, the first time they do it, they just get a verbal. The second time, they get a written warning. And then the third time, it's more serious than that. And we said, how many first warnings do you give? Lots. How many second warnings do you give? Not many at all, as it turns out. How many third warnings? None, really. Because, of, people, of course, people learn that at the point you do something wrong, just find somebody who hasn't had a first warning le uh, yet and give, give, get them to uh, fess up to it. They created this culture where nobody dared say anything. So here's our challenge. Whether it's to investigate an incident, an accident, or just to investigate the sort of daily life that we see through programs like LOSA uh, and MOSS, this is the challenge uh, as uh, described by Bill Tench, a former chief inspector of accidents. It's a fascinating challenge, occasionally exciting, but always involving patient, even monotonous examination of every aspect of the accident, the tedium of which may erode those qualities of tenacity, imagination and perseverance which are fundamental to the effective investigator. Very important, too, is the need for a sympathetic appreciation of human behaviour under conditions of stress. And I would argue that probably everybody involved in aviation law who's involved in safety would try and work to exactly those principles. Occasionally exciting, patient, monotonous examination of every aspect of the accident. So with that, isn't it great that every so often an event comes along that with the right attitude we can truly learn from? We might not like the event, but we do like the fact that we can get deep into it and understand why things can go wrong. This is the QF32 report, the A380 event the report was released last week. It reminds us that even though modern civil turbine engines are very reliable, um, I did look up what UERF meant. That basically, the, um, the rotor, fan, uh, or rotor disc letting go from the engine are very rare events. The resulting damage from such failure can be significant and potential events catastrophic. This accident represents an opportunity for the regulatory authorities to incorporate any lessons learned into their certification advisory material to enhance the safety of future aircraft designs. It's broader than that. These are the opportunities for all of us to learn and understand and hope that if the next Richard de Crespigny or the next uh, Chelsea Sullenberger is as yet waiting to depart with their aircraft, they can deliver a result uh, that was as phenomenal and as good as they achieved on the day. Thank you very much for your attention. I would be very happy to take questions. <laughs>